by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello and welcome to Emerging Markets Decoded, the podcast that tackles the latest economic and financial trends shaping the world of emerging markets. I'm your host, Ariane Ortiz-Bolling, from Moody's Global Emerging Markets Team, coming to you from New York. On today's show, we'll examine some of the key credit risks for non-investment-grade sovereigns, discussing how the uneven recovery and renewed lockdowns in some regions are challenging government's ability to restore their fiscal and liquidity positions. We'll identify which regions and countries are faring better than others and consider key event risks. And coming up later, we'll take a closer look at Asia-Pacific, where lagging vaccination rates pose risks to domestic demand and how rebounding global trade would support an economic recovery. Our first topic today is non-investment-grade sovereigns and the key credit risks they face. My guest is Marie Diron from the Sovereign Risk Team, joining us from London. Marie, it's great to have you on the show. My pleasure to be here, Ian. Thank you. In a recently published report, you provide a mid-year update on rating strengths for non-investment-grade sovereigns. Let's start with the broadest summary of your research and its findings. What are the key takeaways? One main key takeaway is that our rating analysis increasingly reflects a gradual move towards the assessment of the long-lasting legacy of the pandemic. You see that quite clearly when you look at the rating actions that we've taken on non-investment-grade sovereigns. And so in the first half of the year, we have taken 20 rating actions for that group, compared to 50 in the same period last year. And that diminution in in rating activity reflects the fact that initially in the pandemic, the priority was really to reflect the most acute side of the shock. Well, now we are at the stage where we want to really focus on these long-lasting effects. We'll talk about this in in more detail, but the long-lasting effects relate to the economic shock. We refer to this as economic scarring in part determined in the short term by the control of the pandemic and rollout of vaccinations. It is also uh, related to the fiscal and debt pressure that will come from that, where uh, we're seeing debt-to-GDP ratios for non-investment-grade sovereigns often at or near record highs of around 70% of GDP or higher on average across Latin America and Africa, for instance. There is also an aspect of analysis that looks at liquidity positions, and it's really quite interesting to see how heterogeneous these these positions are. For instance, if we look at spreads in APAC, just within one region, we see them as wide as 1,800 basis points for a sovereign like Sri Lanka, and as narrow as 60 basis points for a sovereign like Vietnam. So economic growth, fiscal and debt pressure and liquidity positions are all aspects of this long-term analysis that we are increasingly bringing in. And I would assume, Marie, that the economic recovery is very much tied to the vaccination rate, right? And the favorable financial conditions have helped many of these countries, but not all of them. And understandably, the nature of this crisis has made it very difficult to do accurate economic forecasts and has also led to significant changes in the fiscal and debt outlooks. How has Moody's assessment of financial and debt outlooks evolved through this pandemic? 
It has been a challenging period to put forecasts out, but that's really essential as part of our communication of our forward-looking views. In the initial phase of the pandemic, we did revise our economic and, and fiscal forecast um, a few times. Now, 18 months in, I think we have a, a better understanding of the, the nature and the severity of the shock and how different the shock is across countries. We had not quite anticipated the overlapping waves that a number of countries would face. And in particular, for some non-investment-grade sovereigns, the, the difficulties that they may face with vaccine supply and rollout. And so, in part as a result of that, we have been led to revise our forecast down uh, compared to the, the end of last year. We have revised our views for growth in 2021 down by around 1, 1.2 percentage points on average for about half the non-investment grade sovereigns. We've made some upward revisions too, and that's been interesting. And that's been where typically the, the reopening of the economy has been possible more quickly than we had anticipated. In particular, the reopening of borders has been an essential element to that. Now, on the fiscal and, and debt side of uh, our analysis, we had factored in already early on in the pandemic a view that deficits would widen quite sharply, and that did happen in 2020. And as a result, debt will jump. And again, that did happen. What our recent forecast revisions show is a more prolonged debt shock. And debt to GDP is likely to edge further up this year, in particular in Latin America and APAC, and uh, to reach on average 70% of GDP, which is quite high level for these regions. There is one exception to this general pattern, and that's Eastern Europe, where we are seeing a slight downward trend in debt-to-GDP ratios already engaged this year, and that is related to the economic recovery being more clearly underway in, this, in that part of the world. Thank you, Marie. And you mentioned several revisions downward and upward in terms of economic forecasts. Is this evenly distributed, the revisions up and down? What's interesting there is that for, for 2021, we have taken more downward revisions in the last uh, six months than upward revisions, largely related to negative surprises on the, the pandemic developments and, and vaccine rollout. However, when we look at 2022, we have then taken an Broadly equal number, I mentioned about half the non-investment grade sovereigns, been revised up and by about an equal amount of also about one percentage points for GDP growth. And that uh, reflects the fact that in our assessment, the, the shock is longer than we had initially anticipated. It's really extending into, uh, into this year. Um, but the broad economic structure, uh, the, the creation of jobs, and the creation of capital and, and productivity should be relatively untouched as soon as economies can open up and more normal economic activity will resume. Well, the pandemic certainly is not over yet, but as we take stock of this impact, has anything surprised you in terms of how countries have weathered the crisis? Many things have been surprising from the very occurrence of this shock that was truly unexpected and unprecedented shock. With a bit of hindsight now, I think there's a few interesting points that come to mind here. One is, is really the sheer determination by governments around the world to tackle the health crisis. It is really quite striking how addressing the pandemic, controlling the pandemic, is shaping policies around the world. Another, I think, interesting insight, which I think we will look into further as more evidence becomes available, but it is already clear that uh, the presence of social safety nets and informal networks in general 
have played a major role in supporting income and hence consumption. In amongst the non-investment grade sovereigns that we rate, typically incomes are, are relatively lower. And without that support from social safety nets or from informal networks, then we would have likely seen an even deeper contraction in consumption than we have seen in practice. On a different theme, I think it's been very interesting to see how differentiated financing conditions have become amongst non-investment grade sovereigns. Initially in the pandemic, it was this period in March, April 2020, where international markets were more or less closed to the vast majority of sovereigns in that group. Since then, we've seen a number of non-investment grade sovereigns issue bonds, including frontier markets like Cameroon or Mongolia or Senegal, for instance. And there is really a stark differentiation in, in financing conditions in that group that seems to be related in part to the very nature of the shock and how it is affecting different sovereigns, but also related to pre-existing strength and challenges that investors are factoring in. Hmm. You've mentioned more than once the pre-existing conditions, that is the underlying macro fundamentals and then credit conditions that these countries had in the outset, right, as the pandemic began. From a credit perspective, can you give us some examples of countries that are exceeding our expectations and others that are lagging our expectations? I do think that in a shock like this one, we are seeing um, pre-existing conditions being exacerbated. And sometimes that's uh, exacerbated in a positive manner. And we have taken positive actions on a number of sovereigns. We have upgraded Benin, Croatia and Serbia, for instance. We have changed the outlooks to uh, positive for Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan and Vietnam. All these rating actions are idiosyncratic and there are particular drivers behind them. But the common theme is that there was positive momentum before the pandemic. And what we have seen during the shock is that that positive momentum really has helped the sovereigns address this shock, face this shock. Um, and that, that positive momentum has not reversed during the pandemic. So that in itself has told us that a higher rating or in some cases a, a positive outlook was warranted. There have been also uh, some more surprises on the negative side. We knew already before the pandemic which sovereigns depended on tourism. I think we had never seen that dependence really come to light in such a stark fashion as now. And that tourism reliance has really made things extremely difficult for some governments to, to navigate this crisis. The other aspect of that is what, what I mentioned earlier. The negative pre-existing conditions relates to, in some cases, pre-existing liquidity constraints, uh, vulnerabilities on, uh, on liquidity risks that have been exacerbated by this pandemic at a time when investors will sometimes tend to be more risk-averse than uh, usual. Mm. Mary, is it fair to say that the worst is behind us, or are some countries still facing a daunting outlook? And what credit relevant challenges do they face? I do hope that the, the most acute face of the pandemic is behind us, given the, uh, the very significant personal and, and financial economic toll that this shock has taken around the world. However, as credit analysts, what we envisage is that the, the chronic face of this crisis will also be highly challenging. And governments are facing multiple demands on healthcare, on social aspects of their policies, and on fiscal policy. In that context, many of them are facing a, a worsening of debt affordability. Debt affordability for non-investment grade sovereigns had already generally worsened over the course of the decade before the pandemic. And it has weakened further during this last year or so, so that in regions like Latin America or APAC and, and Middle East and Africa, 
what we see is that interest payments absorb around 14% of revenue on average. These levels are not particularly high. However, there are levels at which governments start facing more difficult choices in the allocation of their limited resources. And that is uh, very striking when you compare this 14% uh, really average cost of debt to a 4% average interest revenue ratio for APAC and Middle East and Africa 10 years ago. So the choices are definitely much more stark. For some sovereigns, like Sri Lanka or Suriname, interest payments absorb as much as 20% of revenue, and uh, the policy choices are, are that much more constrained. There is again an exception to this. I mentioned Eastern Europe earlier, as far as debt trends are concerned, and it is also uh, an exception on the debt affordability side, where there uh, we see the region benefiting from low and, uh, in many cases, falling interest rates, and debt affordability is improving. And so that gives uh, these sovereigns in, in that region um, much more flexibility uh, to deal with fiscal policy. Fascinating. Thank you for your insights, Marie. We cover a lot of ground. Now, attempting to summarize what we learned, it is clear that the pandemic will have a long-lasting legacy, underscored by the weak economic recovery that is, of course, closely tied to the control of the virus and vaccination rates. And this means that some countries will continue to have elevated fiscal deficits and higher debt levels, with the implication that this may have to credit risks. Now, pre-existing conditions, that is fundamental characteristics and liquidity positions are the main drivers behind credit risks and sovereign rating actions taken by Moody's. And one thing that I found particularly interesting is the relevance of the interest payments to revenue indicator, which helps gauge the availability of resources to continue to support rising debt levels. The more you channel towards interest payments, the less you have for other competing policy priorities. And finally, another interesting takeaway is that Eastern Europe is the most resilient region among emerging markets. We now turn to the economic and credit outlook for Asia Pacific, where coronavirus infections have once again begun to spike in a number of countries as vaccination rates in the region remain low, even in many advanced economies. Since data that we reported in mid-June, only a handful of Asian countries have administered a first dose of the coronavirus vaccine to at least 40% of their populations, with Maldives far in the lead at more than 80%. In some countries, limited access to vaccines and large or dispersed populations explain these low rates. India, for example, has vaccinated only 16% of its population, and Indonesia has vaccinated just 9%. For more insights on the vaccination situation in Asia, I'm pleased to welcome Anushka Shah from the Sovereign Risting, joining us from Singapore. Hi, Anushka. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ariane. Thank you for having me. So, Anushka, let's start with this. How is the lagging vaccination rate in Asia shaping the economic recovery? Well, as you pointed out, we are seeing some correlation between the vaccination rates and a resurgence in coronavirus infections. And also, as you pointed out, these infections have spiked during the second quarter in a number of economies in, in the region where vaccination rates are low. So that includes the ASEAN countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, India, even a few advanced economies. And low vaccination rates, again, they reflect limited access to vaccines and larger dispersed populations. Of course, specific circumstances matter. In some countries like Maldives and Mongolia, the vaccination rates are very high. 
but infections have still spiked. The resurgence in, in more infectious mutations of the virus will dampen and delay the growth recovery across the region. That will mainly be through the effects that it has on mobility rates, which are deterred by fresh distancing restrictions and on private sector consumption. And will this lead to a deterioration in the credit quality of those emerging market sovereigns that are experiencing a resurgence in coronavirus cases? It depends on the credit profiles of the sovereigns themselves and the extent of the impact that they see on growth. Weaker growth outcomes, of course, present negative credit pressures for many of the APAC economies that are experiencing the rise in infection rates. But oftentimes, structural features, such as a more externally oriented economy, may offset some of the hit that these countries see to domestic consumption because of the ongoing upturn in global trade. Apart from that, some economies have greater flexibility to provide fiscal support through stimulus measures without really seeing a major dent or impact on their public finances. And then finally, ongoing efforts to accelerate the pace of vaccination can also limit the, the magnitude of the growth impact that an economy might experience. And which countries do you think are better equipped to deal with the second wave shock and, and why? Well, among the APAC sovereigns, the ones that are more trade-oriented, like Singapore, Vietnam, Taiwan, to some extent Malaysia, they can benefit from improving global demand and trade flows. Some of these economies, particularly Singapore, are scaling up vaccination rates relatively quickly, which would further limit the impact of the fall in private sector activity. Apart from that, many governments are now starting to increase social support to shield vulnerable groups. For sovereigns that have already relatively weak fiscal positions, an increase in social spending will weigh on their credit profiles. But conversely, for governments with fiscal space and relatively moderate debt burdens, expanding the reach of social programs to reduce poverty, to curb income inequality, can support credit profiles by decreasing any social risks. Thailand, the Philippines, and some of the more advanced economies in the region do have space to continue to roll out fiscal spending and support measures. Broadly speaking, the inference here is that greater institutional capacity and management of the pandemic would also have a bearing on a sovereign's overall resilience to the economic impact. Thank you for the very comprehensive overview. Now, global trade has rebounded and will continue to recover over 2021. We at Moody's expect global trade to grow by 7 to 9% in 2021, following a 9% contraction last year, although trade volumes will not reach their pre-pandemic levels before 2022. Trade volumes are understandably below 2020 levels because of the pandemic, but geopolitical tensions and shifts in government's strategies have led to new sanctions and disruptions to supply chains, slowing down the recovery. Nonetheless, global trade is rebounding. So, Anushka, can improving external demand offset weaker domestic demand? In some economies in APAC, we do expect that large contributions from external demand will bolster output, assuming there are no closures of export processing sites or factories. In the case of Vietnam, uh, for instance, robust goods exports, especially in electronics, have supported an expansion in GDP all through 2020, even amidst the pandemic. 
Another example is Taiwan, where strength in exports and very effective containment of coronavirus infections last year supported domestic demand and made this one of the few advanced economies to see an expansion last year as well. And a third example is Malaysia, where the diversity of the country's export destinations and products should help it to capitalize on the global trade rebound, should support output despite the rise in coronavirus cases. Finally, as a commodity exporter, Indonesia could also benefit here. But it's worth bearing in mind that net trade itself is a very small portion of its overall GDP. So the benefits that it could see are somewhat limited. Thank you. Well, thank you. And this means that the new wave of contagions may impact all Asia Pacific, but that does not necessarily mean that their credit profiles will be impacted. Some are better equipped to deal with this crisis, either by having fiscal space and better fundamentals, if you will, and also given their trade composition and their connectiveness with the recovery that we're seeing elsewhere that could really compensate these lockdowns that they may be facing domestically. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Anushka. Thank you for having me here, Ariane. And with that, we conclude this edition of Emerging Markets Decoded. For those interested in keeping up to speed with our latest views across all emerging markets, you can visit our dedicated Emerging Markets Hub for the very latest research, podcasts, and interactive webinars. And finally, you can now also subscribe to Moody's Talks Emerging Markets Decoded on your favorite podcast channels, including Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Please do share with us your reviews, comments, and suggestions for future episodes. Stay safe and thanks for joining us.